This life-changing message comes to you from Church of the Harvest. It's our prayer that this message will inspire your life and bring hope to your future. How many of you have read chapter 10 of the story? Put it up there. Come on. Give me some hearts and give me some thumbs ups. Uh, I got some hands, a couple of hands from the few people that are uh, in here on Sunday morning. By the way, I want to thank the one hand that we just got. I want to thank our elder, uh, Robert Montgomery, being here this morning. And, and his son, Titus, is here running the camera. So uh, everybody say thank you, Titus. Give, give, give a little thank you out to, uh, to, to Titus for, for being here. He could have he slept in and, and whatever else this morning. But instead, he's sitting in the back uh, uh, controlling, a, controlling a camera. So, uh, so anyway... Uh, so thankful for, uh, for that. So guys, if this is your first time joining us uh, here for a service at Harvest, we want to thank you and tell you how excited we are that you are here. And, and we are in a series, we're, we're in the 10th week of a series that, as you heard, we are calling The Story. And we started this back in uh, February with the book of Genesis and we're going to conclude it in the month of November with the book of Revelation. And our goal is to understand God's plan, it, what, what I just mentioned, his upper story. Understand what God has been doing from the beginning of time as we know it up until this point through the Bible, up until this point and into the future. What is, get the, what is God's overreaching plan in the midst of all this? And that's what we are, that's what we are pursuing. And our, our guide in the midst of this series is, um, is a book, uh, a version of the Bible that we are calling, uh, that is called The Story. And it is, it's an abridged version um, in the New International Version of, uh, of the Bible. And so um, it, it is in chronological version, it is in chronological order and allows us to, uh, to follow along more easily. And so it is kind of cool, our entire church family is following along and I, I hope you all have the book. If you do not yet have the book, shoot us a message, put a message on the feed here or shoot us a private message and say, I need a copy of the story and we will point you in the right direction. And, and if you have kids, I hope that you've got the children's books and I hope that you're, you're reading each week uh, chapter by chapter uh, with your children. If not, again, send us a message and, uh, and we will point you in the right direction to get those books just as quickly as possible so that you can follow along. Because here's another cool thing. You know, as I mentioned, I believe that God is doing some, some awesome things during this, during this crazy season that we're experiencing, you know, in our nation right now. But isn't it cool that God led us in the direction of doing the story at this particular time um, in the life of our church family. I mean, because we're in this time of, of what we're calling quarantine, and, and we're not able to meet within these four walls, but yet we're able to read the same pages and the same chapters together every week in unity and stay on the same page together. And so, um, so I really believe that God is doing something great through that. So, so anyway, jumping on in, we, uh, next up in the story is chapter 10. It's titled, Standing Tall and Falling Hard. And now I want you to understand, and jumping back just a little bit, this portion of scripture is kind of, it's kind of a transition between uh, the period of the judges that we talked about uh, two weeks ago, I believe it was. By the way, didn't Sean do a great job on the book of Ruth last week? I thought that was awesome. Everybody uh, was commenting about how they learned some things about the book of Ruth, didn't understand before, didn't know. But, um, but we're reading in chapter 10, we're, we're in 1 Samuel. And like I say, this is kind of a transition between the time of the judges that we know was around, it was around 1400 BC. It lasted 300 to 400 years. So it's a transition between the time of the judges and the time of the kings of Israel, which uh, started somewhere around um, 1000 BC. And during this time um, of the judges, during the time of the judges, um, Israel really wasn't a nation. It was more um, of, of a, a collaboration or, or a loose organization of, of tribes, really, is what it was. We know that they didn't have kings. Uh, what they had was judges. And as we talked about this a few weeks ago... These weren't judges in the traditional sense as we think of them today. These judges were more like overseers. So they would, they would make rulings and they would, um, they would resolve disputes and, um, and they, would even, um, they would even lead and guide the tribes into, uh, into battle uh, against enemy nations. So after the book of, um, after they, the children of Israel come into the promised land, remember before judges we were reading from Joshua, after they had come into the promised land, the children of Israel found themselves surrounded by all of these 
enemy nations. And uh, unfortunately, as time went on, these enemy nations seemed more and more hostile toward the children of Israel. And we know that there was a bunch of them, all these ites, the Amalekites, the Moabites, the Canaanites, the Midianites, the Ammonites, all these, and even the Philistines. We know there was all these nations that kept coming against Israel. Now, I think there's a number of reasons. Um, one, this is God's holy people, and the enemy's going to do everything he can to, to stop them. I mean, they, they've been set apart by God as, as a holy nation. But, but uh, also, you've got to remember that they had just come in a few hundred years earlier, and they had driven out the previous inhabitants and received the land that God had given them. Some of those previous inhabitants weren't too happy about that. It's also widely agreed upon um, that one of the major conflicts that, with Israel was the fact that they were right in the middle of perfect trade routes. Um, this Israel is really its pivotal coastal land um, that if you think about it, if you can picture where Israel is, it connects Africa with the Middle East, it connects it with, with Asia and, and even um, northeast, northwesternly into, uh, toward Europe and, and that area. Um, Israel was perfect trading routes. And some of you, uh, a, a number of you were with us in, uh, in Israel last fall, and you may remember the day, one of, one of the first days that we were all together, we stood on top of Mount Carmel, and we looked down, and, and actually went from there, and a little while later we went over to, um, to Tel Megiddo, and we looked down over the valley of Armageddon, and we could see, if you remember our, our guide, he pulled out a map, Alan pulled out a map, and showed us these trade routes, and how Israel was, was kind of the, the crux of it all, it was right in the middle. So this was valuable land. It was, this was very important land during this time, and uh, all these other nations wanted it. So we got to understand in the midst of this, with them being surrounded by all these, um, by all these pagan nations, uh, the Hebrews were vastly outnumbered. They were vastly outmanned. And, uh, and compared to the Hebrews, these other surrounding enemy nations were, they were like world-class military powers. And so one of the things that made these nations so strong was the fact that they did have a king. Each nation had a king. And this king would tax them and he would bring them in and recruit them and make soldiers and, and organize them and strategize and do all these different things. He, he would organize everything in such a manner to make them this military, this military force. We know that also um, you guys are probably familiar with the Philistines. And the Philistines, something I didn't know until recently is that the Philistines had a monopoly on iron in that region of the world. They had iron. And so this meant that their weapons were far more advanced than many of the other nations that were around. And so according to scripture, there was actually a time when Israel went into battle. They actually go out to fight the Philistines and they have got one sword and one spear. I'll show it to you real quick. It's in 1 Samuel 30, 13, 22. And let me mention with that, the version notes are up on the version Bible app. If you do want to follow along, all the notes are on there and you can follow right along with us. But in 1 Samuel 13, 22, it says, So on the day of battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Guys, can you imagine Israel going into the battle and the only sword and spear belonged to the king and his son? I don't know what the rest of them had. Maybe they had slings and clubs. I, I, I have no idea what they carried. But I would have felt kind of intimidated going into battle against the Philistines who had iron. They had swords, and they had spears, and they had chariots, and they had all these different things that Hebrews didn't begin to have. So, so we come through this time where they come into the promised land. We know a generation later, we come into the book of Judges, and we know that the Israelites, are their hearts are turned toward God, and their hearts are turned away from God. And, and they would become oppressed by another nation. They would cry out. God would send a judge who would rescue them. And, and they would do good for a little while, and their hearts would turn away from God again. And, and a couple weeks ago, I called this the sin cycle that they kept falling into. They kept falling into this sin cycle, going back and forth. And I think because of all this that was going on, I, I, I think that during this this time, especially during Judges, um, I think that Israel felt very defeated. Uh, they felt like sitting ducks. Uh, they had had they had 12 judges that had been helping them through this time, and this is where part 10 of the story um, comes into play, where we kind of start today. So if, you've, if you have read from the story this week, you know that chapter 10 opens with a woman by the name of Hannah, and we know that Hannah could not have children. Now, her husband had one other, one other wife, and 
she's just popping out the babies, left and right. She's having babies, having babies, but Hannah can't have any. And this other wife is giving Hannah a hard time and kind of making fun of her and mocking her and stuff. And Hannah feels like a failure, like she has failed God. She's failed her husband and stuff because she can't give birth to a child. And so, so finally, um, Hannah, we know, begins to cry out to the Lord, and she begins to ask him for a son. And she tells him, she says, Lord, if you'll give me a son, I will give him back to you, and he will belong to you all the days of his life. And so the cool thing is we know that God answered that request. He met that prayer request of hers and uh, that cry of her heart. And she does give birth to a son, and his name is Samuel. And Samuel in Hebrew means asked of God. Hannah asked of God for a son, and so she named him Samuel. So God fulfilled um, the request of Hannah, and the cool thing is Hannah also fulfilled her vow to the Lord. And so the Bible says that after Samuel was, uh, was weaned, that, um, that Samuel, she gave Samuel to the Lord. And he was put into the care of Eli, the high priest. And basically he, w- he was raised uh, by Eli. And, um, and the cool thing with, with Samuel, we know that from a young age, as, as a young boy, we know that he was hearing the voice of God. And, uh, and as time goes by, he grows in strength and stature, becomes this priest. And he's one of the only ones in the Bible, uh, one of the only people in the Bible that we know fulfilled the priest of a role, I'm sorry, the role of a priest, the role of a prophet, and the role of a judge. He fulfilled all three of those. Some say that, that, that Moses would have, been, would have been the other one. But Samuel would grow up to fulfill the role of priest, prophet, and judge in, uh, in Israel. So, so Samuel grows up, and he, he's fulfilling these roles, and he's helping to lead and guide Israel during this time, and this time of transition. And uh, we know that uh, Israel is, is still kind of in this unstable time of the judges. And so Samuel's helping them through the, these, these rough years, and he's giving them direction, and he's trying to help them keep their hearts turned and directed toward the Lord. And we know that he even guides them into battle. But we know that they are still fearful of these neighboring nations. And, and really, I, I think they just never knew where the next attack was going to, uh, was going to come from. So that brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 8, and we're just going to kind of go chronologically from here. But in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we know that the elders of the tribes of Israel come together to Samuel, and they say, we want a king. We're done with this. We want a king. We need somebody to lead us and to guide us. Now, remembering that up to this point, Israel had not had a king. God had been their king. They, they had to trust God and whoever he raised up to lead them up until this point for hundreds of years. But now they wanted a king. And I was thinking how it's really interesting as human beings that many times when we go into times of trouble and trials and testing and whatever it may be, we go into these tough times. It's funny how many times we follow in the ways of the world rather than the ways of God. And I, I think that we kind of see that, an example of that in our world right now, in our nation right now, in, uh, in the crisis that, that we're looking at, in that, in that there's many Christians out there who know better, but really they're succumbing to, to fear rather than holding on to their faith in the midst of it all. And, you know, there's so many, even Christians out there right now that are, that are glued to the news and all these stories they're hearing are just fueling and intensifying that fear that they have allowed into their hearts and they're hunkered down and afraid they're going to get sick and whatever else it may be. Now, Understand, I'm not saying not to use wisdom. The Bible tells us to be wise. But there is a difference between concern and paralyzing fear in a moment. We can't be people of fear. We have got to be people of faith. So back to 1 Samuel. The children of Israel, they're they're looking around. Samuel's kind of guiding them and leading them as priest and prophet and judge. But they're looking around and they're saying, look at all these strong nations around us. And they're like, wow, you know what? They all have kings. So guess what? We want a king too now. We want a king. And so we know that Samuel initially responds by trying to talk them out of this idea. So let's look for just a minute in uh, 1 Samuel, again in chapter 8, verses 4 through 9. If you're reading from the story, it's page 135. And here's where it takes up. It says, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. 
And they said to him, you are old. Boy, that's a scary thing to say to some people, isn't it? You are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Now, I guess Samuel's getting old. There's nobody in line to secede him. And so maybe Samuel's going, okay, maybe, maybe my boys will be the ones. They said, your sons don't follow the ways of the Lord. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have, just like everybody else. And verse 6 says, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So we can see here the people asking for a king. We can see that this is troubling to Samuel because he knows that this is not God's best for his people. So he tries to dissuade them. The Lord says, warn them, dissuade them from this. And he tells them, if, excuse me, if you go down and look a few verses down, Samuel looks at him and he says, look, a king is going to, he's going to take a tenth of your crops. And he's going to take your sons and he's going to make them soldiers. And he's going to take your servants and make them his own. And you're basically going to be slaves to this guy that you want so bad as king. And then go down to verse 19. Chapter 8, verse 19. It says, But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then, look at this, then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it to the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Now guys, before we go any further, I see two major, I see two major errors here. Firstly, it says, in uh, verse um, 9, it says, we want, a king to rule over, we want a king over us that we will be like the other nations. They want to be like, what do we know about these other nations? These were pagan nations. They served other gods. They did deplorable things in the sight of the Lord. And they're saying here, we want to be just like these other nations. This isn't who God called Israel to be. He called them to be set apart. He called them to be a holy people, to be his own people. He had a great plan. He was setting them up to, set, to bring forth the Messiah who would redeem the whole world. They weren't supposed to be like these other nations. But it's what they were asking for. Secondly, they didn't heed the word of the Lord. God told them, as he had done so many times before, that there would be consequences for their actions. But again, they refuse to listen. They think they know what is best at this point. And guys, we can think, you know, shame on them, but how often have we done the same things? How often have we found ourselves at different points in our lives conforming to the world, conforming to the world rather than heeding the word of the Lord? And you know as well as I do from personal experience that that never ends well. So the people want a king, and God says, so be it. You've heard the phrase, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, well, here we go. And this begins the reign or uh, the, the saga of King Saul. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend most of the rest of the message uh, looking at the different characteristics we see from day one, from the first time, from the first scripture where we meet Saul, um, all the way through. I want to look at the different characteristics that we see come out in King Saul from day one. And so if you want to follow along in your notes, number one, the first characteristics you see, number one, Saul, handsome tall and timid. Handsome, tall, and timid. Now, you may think it's funny that I mentioned handsome and tall, but if you look at it, if you go to chapter 9, 1 Samuel chapter 9, the very first mention of Saul is about his appearance. It's the very first thing that's mentioned in the Bible. So 1 Samuel chapter 9 verse 2 says, Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. So isn't that interesting? That's the first thing the, thing the Bible mentions about Saul, is that he's handsome and that he's a head taller than anybody else around. And so maybe, I don't know, maybe Saul, maybe he looked like a king. 
Um, We know that he was handsome and tall, but he certainly was not a king at this point. So when we first read about him, we know that he is out looking for lost donkeys. And that's if you go down to verse 5, it says, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. He was herding donkeys. Saul was the donkey herder. Now, you remember the next person who's going to be king. What's his name? David. The next person who's going to be king was herding what? Sheep. He was a sheep herder. So maybe they've got a little something in common, but really they don't. You'll see by the end of the story because they respond very differently to the voice of the Lord. We know that David was very sensitive to the voice of the Lord. Even in the midst of his sin, he was sensitive to the voice of the Lord and he responded well to the Lord. We know that Saul ends up being stubborn and hard-headed when it came to the things of the Lord, but not at first, but not at first. When Samuel first tells Saul that he is going to be king of Israel, we know that Saul resists this. And so if you go down to verse 21, we see Saul's first response. Samuel has just said that he's going to be king. Here's what Saul responds with. He says, but am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe in Israel? And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? I don't know about you, but it's kind of deja vu. I remember two weeks ago when we were talking about the judges. It's almost exactly what Gideon said when the angel came to him and called him, oh, mighty warrior. And, and Gideon says almost the same thing. And so we see, um, we see Saul responding here, and he says, I'm the least qualified. And look, the Benjamites were a small tribe. They, the Benjamites were kind of more known as, as Bedouins, and they kind of had a hard time settling down. And so they were always moving, and they were a small tribe. And, and Saul goes on to say that he is from the least of the families of this small Bedouin tribe. And so right from the get-go, we see that, that Saul, he seems, um, he seems kind, of, kind of humble, and he resists the call to be king. But look what happens. We're going to go on down. We're going to go to the next chapter, um, 1 Samuel chapter, uh, chapter 10. And let me set this up for just a second. Basically, um, Samuel has gone on ahead and he has called together, uh, he's called Israel together, the tribes together, the leaders together, and he's about to introduce to them the king they, that they have wanted so long, this king they've asked of God, he's about to introduce them to the people of Israel. So if you can just imagine, Samuel, it's like he's standing up on a stage, and like he's got a curtain, he's about to, he's about to yank the curtain open, and, and he, he says, so people, here's the king that God's wanted, and he pulls, the, he pulls it, and the curtain opens, and there's nobody there. He's looking around and going, where, where, where in the world is Saul? And if you look in, in, in chapter 10, verse 22, it says, So they inquired further of the Lord. They finally go to the Lord over this and said, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, Yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. So guys, when it came the day for Saul to be appointed a king, Saul went and hid himself among the supplies. The Lord had to call him out. So we know that he was handsome. We know that he was tall, but we also know that he was timid and he resisted this call initially. And just like we see in other stories, this has become a common theme through, through the Old Testament as we've been going through. God does not always pick, rarely does God pick the one who is considered the most qualified um, to be used. Uh, But that's okay. When God's got something for us to do, it doesn't matter if we're qualified. He makes us qualified. Can I get an amen to that? Thank goodness. We don't have to do it in our own strength. So Saul wasn't necessarily the most qualified, but that was okay with God. And so look what happens. If you go down to, um, actually we're going to go back a few verses. Go back to chapter 6. I'm sorry, um, chapter 10, verse 6. In verse 6, Samuel's talking to Saul, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. And then go down to verse 9. It says, As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. Guys, that should be encouraging to you, because what does the Bible say? Who is it that can turn the heart of a king? Only God can. 
in the midst of the chaos and the political mess that we see in our country and in the world today, we are called to pray and to lift up our political leaders, our, those in leadership and authority above us, because only God can turn the heart of a king. And that's what we see him do with Samuel here. The Spirit of God comes upon him, he prophesies, and he's changed into a different person. And we're going to see that here in just a minute at, uh, at number two. But, but anyway, um, God changes Saul's heart and sets him apart for this work to be king. Now, if you go look back, uh, let's see, look at verse 8. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8. What we've got here is Samuel basically gives Saul some very specific instructions. Now, this is very important. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it right now. We're going to come back to it closer to the end. But, um, but Samuel stops Saul and says, wait a minute, listen to me. Listen. Verse 8, he says, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. So what happens here? Saul says, I want you to, from here, I want you to head to Gilgal. I'm going to meet you there. I'm going to sacrifice some burnt offerings and some fellowship offerings. And he basically says, we're going to seek the Lord together to kick off this, this new role of yours as king. We're going we're to seek the Lord and we're going to offer sacrifice. He says, but you must wait. He says, wait until I come to you and I tell you what to do. And, and as we see in this, Saul seems good with that. As a matter of fact, it seems that Saul's willing to accept all the help that he can get. But here's what happens. Samuel leaves. He gives Saul these specific instructions. Samuel leaves. Saul's job now is to go to Gilgal and to wait for Samuel to worship the Lord together. And something happens though. Before he go to Gilgal, they're attacked. Some of the Hebrews are attacked uh, by one of these neighboring enemy nations. And, uh, and this is where we see things begin to change with King Saul, really right from the beginning. So the first characteristics we see in Saul is that he's handsome, that he's tall, and that he's timid. Number two characteristics we see Saul, we see strong and courageous. Strong and courageous. So Saul's got this job. He's got this assignment from Samuel. He's supposed to go to Gilgal and wait for Samuel. But an enemy nation invades and begins to attack. So let's see what happens. And we're going to go to the next chapter, chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. It says, Nahash the Amorite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to him, these, these are Hebrews, all the men of Jabesh said to him, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. They basically said, don't kill us. Don't kill us. We'll, we'll make, a treaty, make a treaty with us. We'll be your subjects. They basically surrendered. Look how he responds in verse 2. But Nahash the Amorite replied, I will make a treaty with you, but only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. <laughs> God, that's a tough one right there. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Uh, they obviously don't know how to respond. And, I, and look, I know this, this, sounds, this sounds really tough. Guys, understand um, a couple things here. One, this is, a, this is a different day in it. This is the Bronze Age, okay? This, was a, this is one of the more barbaric times in history, okay? Um, but basically, the Hebrews respond, or actually, the Amorites say, okay, we'll let everybody live, but we're going to gouge out the right eye of every person and so make a spectacle of Israel. And the, and the Hebrews respond, and they basically said, uh, can, can you give us just a little while to think about it? And, and somehow, Nahash, the Amorite, agrees to that. He says, okay. And so, uh, so if you jump down to verse, uh, to verse 6, this is where Saul, Saul the tall and the timid, he hears word of what Nahash the Amorite has done. And then he's threatening to, to gouge out the right eye of everybody in this area that he's invaded. Saul is irate. And in verse 6, chapter 11, verse 6, it says, When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. It says, and he took a pair of oxen, he cut them into pieces, and he sent the pieces by messenger throughout Israel, proclaiming, this is what will be done to the oxen of anyone who does not follow Samuel and Saul. This was his recruiting technique right here. It says, then the terror of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out together as one. And then if you jump down to verse 11, it says, The next day Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Amorites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. 
Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Guys, the Bible says that there were 330,000 people that came out to fight with Saul that day. He's gone from being tall, handsome, and timid to suddenly rallying the troops together and having 330,000 troops at his disposal. We know that they marched against the Amorites and they prevailed. And all of a sudden, what's happened? Saul has won his first victory. He has overnight become this hero king that the people have asked God for. It's just what they wanted, a king who would lead them into battle. Actually, they said he will fight our battles for us. So the people loved him. As a matter of fact, some of the Hebrews in the next verse say, if you don't follow, they're talking to the other Hebrews, they're saying, if you won't follow Saul and Samuel, we're going to kill you. And if you look at verse 13, Saul responds, and he says, no one will be put to death today, for this day the Lord has rescued Israel. Guys, I don't know about you, but to me, Saul's looking pretty good at this point. He's doing pretty well. He seems to be on the right path. He has risen to the occasion. He's looking more, more kingly, I guess you could say. He still seems humble, and he's even giving the Lord credit for this first battle that they have come together and, uh, and won. But we can't get ahead of ourselves because in the next couple of chapters, we see things begin to change in Saul's life. Over the next couple chapters, we see that Saul is beginning to get too comfortable with this uh, new role as the king of Israel, the king of God's people. Basically what happens, um, Saul gets one major victory under his belt and he starts getting the big head. How many of us have ever been there before? We think, man, I did a great job on that. And so uh, I, I read actually in one of the commentaries for the story, I, I read a comment that, that kind of struck me. It said, as human beings, we are sometimes better at handling adversity than handling success. How true is it that many times we can make it, we can rough our way through trials and tribulations, but one success can take us down. It's amazing. And I think this is part of what happens with Saul, because we begin from this point, we begin to see the change in his life. So he goes to Gilgal, he's waiting for Samuel, he's won this battle um, against uh, the Ammonites, and before Samuel can arrive, guess what? He catches word that the Philistines are now coming. Uh, he catches word that the Philistines are in this outlying camp out, out of ways, and that they are going to be coming to attack. And remembering the Philistines have a, a monopoly on iron. And the Bible says that in this they had 3,000 chariots uh, uh, besides all their troops ready to come in and to attack Israel. So at this point the Bible tells us, tells us that Saul's men who have, they, they've just won this great battle. All of a sudden they all run in panic and fear. They take off. They've just won this great battle. They hear the Philistines are over the horizon, and they take off. It says in um, chapter 13, verse 6, it says, They hid in caves and thickets among rocks and pits and cisterns. He had 330,000 troops that gathered together that just won this battle, and now they're hiding in caves and thickets among rocks and pits and cisterns. So I can only imagine here in this moment that Saul is trying to figure out what in the world to do. He needs to somehow rally the troops together, but he promised Samuel. Samuel commanded him, the word of the Lord, to, to, to wait for him at Gilgal to offer sacrifice and seek the Lord. So I can only imagine in this that Saul probably got, he probably got fearful. Um, I think he probably figured that, Saul was, um, that Samuel was taking too long to get there. He's thinking... I, I've got the Philistines to deal with. I've got, I've got troops to lead. I, I've got decisions to make. And he decides that he is out of time and that he doesn't have the time to obey. And that's where we see the major change. So we've talked about the characteristics of Saul, handsome, tall, and timid. Then we saw Saul strong and courageous. But then shortly thereafter, number three, we see Saul, and he's too busy to worship and too big to obey. Too busy to worship and too big to obey. 
Guys, it was from this point on that we see Saul change to the point where he's beginning to take matters now into his own hands. And unfortunately, this is the way he kind of lives out the rest of his reign. Uh, remembering he was supposed to wait on Samuel to offer these sacrifices. The Bible tells us he couldn't wait. And uh, we're, what, in chapter 13, if you go down to verse 9, 1 Samuel 13, verse 9, it says, So he said, and now this is Saul speaking. So Saul said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Everybody say, "Uh uh-oh, this is bad news. Just as he finished making the offering, get this, just as he finished making the offering, who arrives? It says Samuel arrives. So Saul goes out to greet him. What have you done, asked Samuel. Saul replied, well, when I saw the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling a mikmash, everybody say fear, He's full of fear. I thought, well, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. And look at this. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Guys, The offering of sacrifice was a job for a priest, never a king. It was a job for the priest. And so we see in this a different side of Saul coming out. A side of Saul that is too busy to obey and too busy to worship. He's trying to hurry up and get this worship thing done because he's got more important things to do. He's got an army to lead. He's got a battle. He's got troops to lead. He's got a battle to fight, uh, whatever it may be, a battle to win. There's no time to stop and wait for Samuel and heed the word of the Lord. There's no time to stop and to worship. The same Saul who had been humble, the same Saul that he was hiding among supplies just a little while earlier, is now trying to assume the role of God's priest. And he's overstepped his bounds in a big way. If you go to verse, um, again, verse 13, you've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You've not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, you would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Look at this. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Who's he talking about? He's talking about David. The Lord has sought after a man after his own heart and appointed him the ruler of his people. Because, why? Because you have not kept the Lord's command. Guys, as best we can tell, this is still early on in King Saul's reign. And he has already proven himself not fit for the job. And God has already chosen someone else whose heart was after God to secede Saul as the king of Israel. Saul had, before that, he had considered himself too small, too timid, uh, unqualified to be king. But now he's too busy. His heart has become haughty and he's too busy to worship and obey. And, and as, if, as if that wasn't enough, look, look what he does next. And we're going to go jump to chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse, um, verse 3. And, and let me set this up for a second. Um, they're going out to another battle, and um, God has given word um, that Saul is to lead the people and to smite the nation of Amalek, the Amalekites. And when we say smite, we mean to utterly destroy. And so if you look at 1 Samuel 15, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 3, here's what God says. God says, totally destroy all that belongs to them. Get this. Put to death men, women, children, and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now, guys, I know again this is a this is a one of those tough things. Again, it was a it was a different time, and 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 we could make excuses as to why would God do this. And look, I'm going to talk about it in a minute. Actually, God did have a reason in commanding this. There is a reason for it, and and I'm going to get to that actually closer to the end. But Here's the thing. Long story short, Saul did not obey the word 
of the Lord. If you go down to, chap, to verse, um, chapter 15, verse 20, it says, He, being Saul, Saul took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared King Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, and everything that was good. So for whatever reason, Saul did not completely obey the word of the Lord. He left King Agag. Maybe he thought King Agag was, uh, was more useful to him alive than dead. I, I have no earthly idea why he would have left him alive. But it says he also kept the best of the cattle and the sheep that God had said destroy. He didn't obey what God said. Saul has become arrogant. He thinks he knows what's best. He didn't have the time to worship. He didn't have the time to obey and seek after the Lord. But look at what he does have time for. Look at, in chapter 15, go back a few verses to verse 12. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 12. It says, he went to Carmel to set up a victory monument in his honor. You see it? He didn't have time to wait on Samuel he didn't have time to worship the Lord and do things properly in order. But he has time to go to Carmel and elect, uh, erect a monument in his own honor. Can, if, if you can picture it, he makes this monument. It probably says King Saul across the bottom. He's excited. He erects his own monument before the people. He doesn't have time to worship and obey, but he has time to erect a monument. What has happened to Saul the timid? Saul the humble? And a few verses later, uh, go uh, a couple verses down, verse 13, um, basically what happens is Saul is, is back with Samuel again. And Saul says, I have accomplished God's plan to the letter. Did he? Of course not. He kept King Agag alive and kept the best of the sheep and the cattle. And it says, so Samuel said, so what is this I'm hearing? Why am I hearing the bleeding of sheep and the mooing of cattle? <laughs> Samuel saying, Telling, Saul's telling Samuel he obeyed God's word to the letter. All the while, the sheep and the cattle that they were supposed to have destroyed are mooing and bleeding in the background. Look at verse 17. Samuel's still speaking. He says, when you were little in your own eyes, when you looked at yourself as, as small, when you were humble, when you didn't have the big head, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? He's saying when you weren't so haughty and you weren't so arrogant, when there wasn't a monument in your honor at Carmel, when you were still small in your own eyes, then you were the leader of Israel. You were the head of Israel. The people looked up to you and honored you. You were able to be used by God. But as he got bigger in his own eyes, as he got more arrogant, as he got the big head, he could no longer see God in the midst of it all. Too busy to worship and too big to obey. 1 Samuel 15, verse 28. Look at this. Look at verse 28. So Samuel said to him, so the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and he has given it to a neighbor of yours. Who is it again? David. He has given it to a neighbor of yours who is what? Who is better than you? Man. Daggum. Guys, we know 1 Peter 5, 5. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Saul has become the ultimate example of what not to do. How many of you know that it is possible to become too big, to become too haughty, to become too arrogant for God? You can't be used. Now, you can never be too humble for God, but you can be too haughty and too arrogant for him and make yourself, put yourself in a position where you can't really be used. And, and guys, Saul, the story of Saul is <laughs> not really an encouraging story. It's not one of those you walk away from just pumped up and encouraged. It's a, it's a tough story, but I believe, that, I believe that it serves as a warning for us. And before I close out here in just a minute, I want to use that last point I just gave you, and I want to talk about two signs of a haughty heart. And I want you to examine your own heart and think, do I have a haughty, a pride, an arrogant heart? In any area. So two signs of a haughty heart. Number one, we mentioned a minute ago, too busy to worship. Too busy to worship. As I said, to Saul, worship was something that he needed to get done. He needed to hurry and get done. He couldn't wait for Samuel. He needed to hurry and get it done so he could get to the things that really needed to be done. 
Does that make sense? I think that many of us live our lives that way today. I think the church is full of people who live their lives in that same mindset. You look at any given weekend, any given Sunday, how many people are too busy to worship, are too distracted to worship, maybe too tired to worship, or maybe like Saul, maybe even too arrogant to worship. And, you know, I think about it, if you think about worship, you know, we, we always say worship isn't too fast songs and too slow songs. Worship is a, worship is a lifestyle. It's, it's, a, it's a life that we live. But everything about worship is about a heart of humility. It's about humility. And th- just think about, think about praise and worship for a minute. As we come together and we sing and we worship the Lord. Think about how we, how we bow our heads and we lift our hands and we bow our knees. It's about saying, God, I can't, but you can It's about humbling ourselves before him. Where there is true worship, there is always going to be a humble heart. In the absence of worship is a heart that says, I don't need God. I've got this. I don't need to worship. I'm too busy. I'm too important. I've got things to do. And guys, as I said a minute ago, we've all done it before. We've all, at different points, probably put our to-do list before our worship of God. Guys, I have to confess, I've, I've done it so many times, it's embarrassing in my life. Where we get this attitude that I've got things to do. I've got plenty of time to worship and, and seek the Lord later. Instead of starting the day with an open heart and opening up our Bible and spending a few minutes in prayer, and seeking them, instead, we plunge into our to-do list of, of things that, that we feel that we need to get done. And, and really, we're putting those in a place of more importance than, than, our, than our worship. And it is a sign of a haughty and an arrogant heart. We get this idea that we can honestly do it without God. The reality is, a worshipful heart is a humble heart. A humble heart says, God, I can't make it without you. I can't make it through this day without you. A humble heart says, God, I recognize that there's an enemy out there and he's setting traps for me. He knows my weaknesses. And without you, I'm going to fall for him. And I need you to walk me through this day. I need you with me. We have to start each day in humility saying, God, I need you. If you find yourself often too busy to worship, I encourage you to make the decision to humble yourself, to humble your heart, to start off each day, even if it's just a few minutes of prayer and seeking God and saying those words, saying, God, I need you this day. We've got to make, decide that we can never be too busy to worship. So signs of a haughty heart, too busy to worship. And the second one that we mentioned about Saul, number two, too big to obey. Too big to obey. Now I want to talk about this for a minute because, you know, if we think back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago about the Amalekites, you know, like I say, that was a barbaric time and it seemed like a, what a tough task for God to tell them to kill every man, woman, and child. And we might could almost think that Saul could have justified it and said, why in the world would God have asked me to do such a, such a barbaric thing? But when it comes down to it, point blank, Saul did not obey the word of the Lord. And we know that Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you love me, you'll be happy. He didn't say, if you agree with them, keep my commandments. He said, if you love me, then you're going to do what I say. And I think that many times we hear the command of the Lord. We know what the Bible says. We know what we're supposed to do in any given moment. But many times I think we filter that through, through filter his word through our own mind and our own reasoning. And we start to make excuses. And we say things like, yeah, God said that, but 
But you know what? That was a long time ago. Or th- this, this is a different day and age. Uh, the Bible doesn't apply to what I'm, I'm going through today. Or, or why would God possibly want me, why would he possibly want me to do this? Or, or what God's saying doesn't make any sense. Or, or sometimes we may even say, I basically did what God told me to do, but we didn't finish it. We didn't do it all. We didn't take every step we knew we were supposed to take along the way. And, you know, so I think Saul... It may have been easy in that moment with the Amalekites for Saul to say, I don't understand. I don't get this. Why in the world would, why in the world would God want me to kill all the Amalekites? Why would we slaughter even the children? Guys, as I said earlier, there actually was, there actually was a reason. Um, we know from Scripture that Amalek and his descendants, they were enemies of God. They were enemies Um, every time the Amalekites appear in Scripture, they're trying to destroy Israel. Every time they're trying to destroy Israel. They hated the Hebrews. And here's what they were doing. The enemy was using the Amalekites to try to destroy God's plan using the nation of Israel, who he was using to bring forth a Savior and a Redeemer of the world. Amalek, the nation of Amalek, was in direct opposition to what God was doing and where he was taking the world. They were enemies of God. So, God knew that the Amalekites had to be destroyed. As a matter of fact, I'm going to show you real quick as as I get ready to close here. In Exodus uh, chapter 17, you don't have to turn to it, I'll read it real quick. Um, this is where we first see the nation of Amalek for the first time. This is after they come out of Egypt. This is before the Ten Commandments. It says, God says, they have dared, talking about the Amalekites, they have dared to raise their fist against the Lord's throne. So now the Lord will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. God declared war on Amalek because Amalek declared war on God. And God gave Saul the opportunity to end this hostility once and for all. It's what he wanted to use Saul to do. To stop this hostility between the nation of Amalek and the nation of Israel. And this attack against, really it was the bloodline and the lineage of Jesus is what was under attack. And Saul could have done it. He had that opportunity. It was a hard word. But we know that he spared the king. And we know that he spared the cattle and the sheep. And guys... We don't know 100% if this is true or not. Uh, there's some indications in, in history and in, in, in writings in the past uh, that are not in the Bible. But tradition says that King Agag, who was spared, tradition says that he went on to father at least one more child. And that the hostility toward the Jews continued. And again, there's not enough evidence necessarily to prove it, but there are many theologians who believe that Haman, if you remember Haman from the book of Esther who was trying to kill the Jews, some theologians believe that Haman was a descendant of King Agag. And he was still trying to kill the Jews, trying to kill Israel, trying to stop God's upper story. So would the hatred toward Israel have ended if if Saul had just killed Agag? We we have no earthly way of knowing. But, uh, But we do know that Saul viewed himself too highly to obey God. And so in closing, my question is, what's the area in your own life? What's that area in your life that you haven't surrendered completely and totally to the Lord? What has he told you to do that you haven't completely surrendered to? Whether it was a word, maybe he spoke to you, maybe somebody gave you a word from the Lord, maybe it's just his word Maybe it's as simple as the Bible and some things you know you need to do to line up with God's word. What is it that you have not surrendered? Where is it that haughty area in your heart that you've held back in pride from God? We like to make excuses. We like to say things like God says, we know that God says to forgive. And we say, well, yeah, I know I'm, I know I'm supposed to forgive that person, but... But you don't understand what they did. They did this, this, and this to me. And I'll try, right? God says, love those who disrespect you. I, I know, I, I know I'm supposed to, I know I'm supposed to love them. But, 
but you don't understand how hard it is, and you don't understand you don't, what, what, what they're saying or what they're doing or how they've dishonored and disrespected me. We know that God says to seek first his kingdom above all else. And we stop and we make excuses and we say, yeah, I know, I know. I need to make some changes in my life. I know, but, or I'll do it when, or whatever it may be. Guys, it's all signs of a haughty heart. And it's what took down King Saul. We can make all kinds of excuses in life, but it's all haughtiness and pride. It says, God, I know better than you do. And this is where we got to be careful because this is the mistake that Saul made. And we know that what God had given him was ripped out of his hands and given to another. Guys, I don't want to ever be guilty of that. We know the Romans 12.3 says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. As I said earlier, we can certainly be too big and too haughty and too arrogant for God. But we can never be too small and too humble for God. He gives grace to the humble, but we know that he resists the proud. As, as I said, the story of Saul is not an exciting one. <laughs> it, it, it ends on such a sour note and it's sad because we see Saul and, and he had such potential in his life. Now, next week we're going to start digging into the life of King David. And let me tell you, that, that will be a little bit more excited. But I believe that God gives us the story of Saul for a reason. And I believe that he wants to warn us. It serves as a warning. He wants to remind us of what happens when we become too big for our own good. When we become too busy to spend some time with him. When we become too busy to worship and to obey. We've got to remain humble. And that is how we can truly be big for God and allow him to use us and do everything that he's called us to do. There at home, I just encourage you, wherever you may be, just bow your head together with us because we always want to end our service by giving you the opportunity to surrender your life to Jesus. And guys, by definition, surrender is humility. We're talking about the humble heart. There's nothing more humble in this life than stopping and examining your life and where you're at, repenting of your sin, turning from it, and saying, God, I can't make it on my own. And saying, I lay down my life to you. I give you every part. I believe that you know better than I do. I'm going to allow you to lead me and to guide me and to use me as you see fit. And I'm going to trust you with my life. That is the most humble decision that you can make. And if you're here and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, if you're watching, whether it's today or it's next week or next month or next year, I encourage you right now to examine your heart. And if that's you, we're going to, we're going to briefly pray a prayer together. But let me tell you, that prayer is powerful. Because the Bible says that if you mean it with all of your heart, that you become a new creation. Old things pass away. All things become new. you got the creator of the universe walking with you. He will lead you and he will guide you. He who has your very best in mind. He has a plan and a purpose and a future for you. And he will lead you and he will guide you right into it. But the first thing you got to do is humble yourself and say, Jesus, I ask you to be Lord of my life. And if that's you, I just invite you right now, wherever you're at, to pray a prayer something like this. You can repeat after me or you can pray your own prayer. All you've got to do is meet with all your heart. Heavenly Father, I am a failure on my own. I've tried to live this life the best way that I know, but I fall over and over again. So today I declare that I need you. I realize that I can't make it without you and I was never meant to. So firstly, I repent of my sins. I don't just say I'm sorry. I point them out in my own heart. And I choose to turn from them. And I choose to go the other direction and to not go back to those things 
those things that are so opposed to you. Lord, I repent and I ask your forgiveness in my life. And secondly, Jesus, I ask you to be Lord of my life. I make you the Lord of my life. I thank you for coming and laying down your life for me, for taking my sin and my guilt and my shame and willingly going through immense torture and pain and ultimately taking my sin and my shame and my judgment to the grave, paying the price for it. Today, I receive your sacrifice, Jesus. I receive it as my own. And I declare that you are Lord of my life and I will follow you all the days of my life. Lead me and guide me. Speak to me, God. Holy Spirit, fill me now. Baptize me in your Holy Spirit. Empower me to be everything that you've called me to be. And I will follow you to the end and accomplish all of your purposes for my existence. I live to worship you. I give you honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, if you prayed that, and in the last few weeks, we've had a few, and we've loved reaching out to you. Guys, if that's you, we want you to send us a note. You can fill out that connection card. The link will come back up in a minute. You can fill out that connection card, and you can check on there. I gave my life to Jesus, or I rededicated my life to Christ. You can also shoot us a private message. You can just put it right up there on the news feed if you want. You can say, praise God, I gave my life to Jesus today. And we're going to reach out to you and we're going to give you a little bit of direction. And we just want to rejoice and celebrate with you because this is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. And we are excited for you. It's just the beginning. Things are only getting started for you. And uh, God has great things in store. We want to be a part of that. We want to help to lead you and guide you. So please reach out to us and let us know so that we can get in contact with you and pray with you and give you some direction. Guys, with that, I know that we've gone over just a little bit. But um, again, I just want you to stop and I want you to bow your heads for just a minute, wherever it, it may, you may be. I want you to stop for just a moment. I know that nobody wants to be like what we just read in King Saul. But we've all been guilty. Too busy to worship. We're too big and arrogant and proud in our own eyes to obey God and do what we know we're supposed to do. And I feel like there's some of you, the Lord is even saying right now that he's spoken words to you. He's told you some things to do. He's given you some next steps. I don't know if it was today or if it was yesterday or it was last month or last year or 10 years ago, but he has given you instruction. And I want you to allow this story, the story of King Saul, to be a warning of what happens when we stand proudly by and don't obey the word of the Lord. When we humble our hearts before him, we allow him to use us so that we can accomplish his will in his kingdom in the earth today. If that's you and you find yourself too busy in this life, and I know things have changed. Most of us aren't too busy right now. Guys, there's no reason not to be in God's word and in prayer right now at this point in your life. No reason. Or if you're at a place where you know that there's some things the Lord has told you to do and called you to do, that you haven't obeyed. I want you right now where you're at. I want you to repent. Say, God, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry for thinking I know what's best. I'm sorry for trying to serve you with a haughty heart. I'm sorry for putting myself in a position where I, I can't truly be used by you in this life because I refuse to do what I know to do. Guys, this is holding back so much of the body of Christ right now. And I believe some of you right now, the Lord is convicting your heart and he's pointing out some different things. I want you to repent. Guys, many of us pray for revival in our land. Let me tell you what, revival, every great revival has started with repentance. So we say, God, today that we repent 
for all the times that we have been far too busy. We've had our own plan, our own agenda, our own to-do list that we have put before you. And we say, God, that we repent right now in Jesus' name. So many petty things that we've made so important in our own eyes, in our own hearts, that are nothing in the scope of eternity. God, we repent for being too busy to worship. God, we repent for being too haughty, too arrogant to obey and do what your word says to do. We declare this day that we will listen and that we will obey and we will be your obedient bondservants in Jesus' name. That we will walk according to your word. We will live by your precepts. That your word will be written on the tablets of our hearts. That we will not forsake it. We will not turn away from it in Jesus' name. But we allow your word, Lord, to be a light unto our path. And we follow you, God. All the days of our lives. If you'd like to get more information about resources from Church of the Harvest, please check out our website at midsouthharvest.org. You may also contact us by phone at 662-890-1573 or toll free at 866-383-8277. You are Lord, I'm a